Radio. Hello and welcome to this Lumen Verum Apologetics Lecture by Ms. Lucy O'Connell on the topic, Books Catholics Should Read or At Least Know About. This September 2007 recording comes from one of Lumen Verum's Friday Evening Apologetics Lectures at St. Michael the Archangel Parish in Belfield. Lucy O'Connell holds a Master of Arts and has experience in the book industry. Good evening and welcome once again to Lumen Verum Evening. And this is a talk that I've been looking forward to a lot. Uh, the, the title of the talk is uh, Books That Catholics Should Read or At Least Know About. Because if we know about them and if we haven't got time to read, we can always pass on the information. And who uh, better to give this talk than Miss Lucy O'Connell, who's very English literature orientated, works in a bookshop, and uh, is very, very competent in this field. So with great pleasure, I present to you Lucy. Well, the topic is books Catholics should read, subtitled or at least know about. Uh, which is a very broad topic and it's also a little bit didactic. So the first thing that I'd like to do is just to set some parameters uh, for the talk and clarify exactly what we mean. Um, for example, which Catholics are we talking about and what sort of reading are we talking about? Well, we thought when Arlette and I were talking about it, we thought most of us know the sort of spiritual literature that we like, um, whether that's Lives of the Saints or books of theology, spirituality or prayers and we know what our sort of more specific Catholic interests are, whether that's apologetics or philosophy and so forth. And if we don't know, we certainly know priests or you know, any number of competent authorities who can set us in the right direction for our, our very instructive Catholic reading. So I'm not going to talk about those books. It's not um, Books Catholics should read if they want to be better Thomists, or books Catholics should read if they want to improve their meditations, or things like that. Uh, it's also uh, not a talk uh, about books Catholics should read if they've never read anything. Um, if you know you've never cracked a book in your life, or you mostly just read magazines or something, um, or you know someone who's like that and has just said, "What can I read?" We're not, we're not quite focusing at that, at that level. Um, I would suggest if you did know someone who wanted to branch out on his reading a little bit and had never read anything, uh, probably to start either with uh, The Screwtape Letters by C.S. Lewis or almost anything by G.K. Chesterton. Um, but what we're talking about tonight is for the sort of Catholic who doesn't necessarily want to be you know, a great big literature buff doesn't want to read everything that was ever written, uh, but who already knows about, say, C.S. Lewis, maybe read a little bit of Chesterton, has probably seen The Lord of the Rings if he hasn't read it, um, who, who already has that base. The sort of person who knows that there is just a vast universe of books out there for all different tastes, all different topics. There's a whole mass of information out there and it's all influencing people in different ways and doesn't know where to start with this, with this universe. So, I have to begin with a few disclaimers. The first 
is that I haven't read everything that there is to read. Um, I can only recommend books that I have actually read, which means I could easily leave out things that are very important. For example, a couple of my friends told me, um, they said, oh, Lucy, you must talk about The Napoleon of Notting Hill by Chesterton. Well, I haven't read The Napoleon of Notting Hill and didn't get round to reading it before tonight, so I can't talk about it. I can certainly say that I know people who, who enjoyed it, but... It would be fake if I just Googled it and then tried to give a speech. Um, so if I don't mention your favourite book or if I don't mention the book that you happen to know is the most important book ever written, the reason is probably that I haven't read it. So, so this talk does not even approach being exhaustive. Um, it's hopefully an enticement to further reading. The second disclaimer is this. Um, there is, a, there is a subjective element to all reading, um, even to reading non-fiction, just because, because different writing styles influence everyone so differently. There is no such thing as a book that everyone loves um, or a book that everyone will benefit from. Again, for example, almost every Catholic I know who has read C.S. Lewis's Space Trilogy uh, loved it. I know a few people who read this trilogy as non-Catholics, um, and they're now in the church. Um, the trilogy explores, it, it's, it's science fiction, but with a lot of theology woven in. So, you know, a character who flies to Mars or somewhere and sees an unfallen race being tempted. And there's, there's theology, a lot of theology woven in with the science fiction. And everyone I know loves it, but I couldn't stand it. Um, when I read it, I was just, I was like, Enough with the blue trees and the pink grass and the yellow waves, it just, you know, that sort of thing. Um, so, so, yeah, so there is a subjective element to all reading. And when I was thinking about this, I thought, well, yes, you know, even if we look at the Bible, the whole of which is perfect and inspired by God, we still find that we all have different favourite books and favourite passages. You can say to someone, what's your favourite gospel? And he'll say John or Luke or something like that. So I thought, well, if God himself can write a series of books with different degrees of appeal to different personalities, you can be certain that there's going to be varying degrees of appeal of uh, books by human authors. Um, I mention this just because I had a really bad experience once with a customer who insisted that I choose the book for him out of the new releases stand, and none of those books were suitable for him, but he insisted that it came, so we gave him something, and he came back the next day in a horrible rage and said it was the worst book he'd ever read, and I had this horrible vision of someone ringing Arlette and saying, I picked up a book after that talk, and it was awful, blah, 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 blah. So if I do suggest something and you don't like it, please don't be angry with Arlette. It's just because we're all different. Um, and to try to avoid such a situation, um, I'm going to try to describe uh, maybe the weaknesses of the different books as well as their strengths or to indicate the sort of person who might get something out of the, the sort of person who might not. Uh, we're going to look at three pieces of non-fiction, uh, four novelists and maybe some poetry, just depending on how fast I talk. Um, and I've tried to be just as disparate as possible so that we can look in as many different direction as, directions as possible and hopefully engage as many interests as possible. And the first book I'd like to begin with is a book by Ronald Knox. Now this was a man, he was born in 1888 and he was the youngest of six children, four boys and two girls. 
we don't I, we don't tend to read much or hear much about what happened to the girls in the family, but it does seem that every boy in his family was a genius of some sort. Um, there are a number of interesting anecdotes from his childhood that, in, that indicate the degree of intelligence um, that he had. For example, when he was four, one of his aunts said to him one day, what do you like to do, Ronnie? And he replied at age four, I think all day and at night I think about the past. <laughs> um, there's another occasion when he was six, um, it's described in one of his one of his biographies, where the family was playing, he was quietly playing on the floor and the old brothers were playing a game with their father. And the idea of the game was to embed the name of a person or a place in a sentence, like the clue for a cryptic crossword. And all of a sudden, this six-year-old piped up. He said, if you please, my gentle madam, as custard is very yellow, so rum is very red. The family thought about that for a while and realised he'd embedded the word Damascus in the sentence. If you look at Madam as custard is very yellow, he'd embedded the word Damascus. Um, and the family challenged him and said, Ronnie, how could anyone possibly use that sentence in real life? That doesn't count. And he replied, that's what the old butler said to his mistress who was drinking too much and not eating her wholesome pudding. <laughs> so from a very young age, he had a genius for words and for patterns, which was shared by his brothers. One of them became a famous cryptographer during the Second World War. Uh, another one became um, editor of Punch. So he was, he was set for greatness, and he achieved it. In 1917, uh, four years after his ordination as an Anglican priest, he converted to Catholicism. Now, he was influenced in part by G.K. Chesterton, who hadn't yet converted at that stage, but whose writings had still helped to draw him into the church. And after his conversion, he then helped to bring Chesterton into the church. And in fact, he delivered the homily um, at Chesterton's Requiem Mass. He was renowned as an orator. Uh, his public lectures apparently were famous and were in fact also instrumental in the conversion of Evelyn Waugh, who I'll mention later, and who then went on to write his biography. Uh, Knox also had, he had a very rich literary output. It was very diverse. For example, he wrote detective stories while he was the university chaplain at Oxford and even while he was domestic prelate to the Pope. Uh, he wrote satirical essays about Sherlock Holmes and Sherlock Holmes style criticism. Uh, when the boys were very young, they wrote, I think to Arthur Conan Doyle, pointing out all the errors in all the stories, all the mistakes. Um, he wrote a renowned uh, a work of apologetics, which I haven't read, but which apparently is, is very good, called The Belief of Catholics. And he spent a lot of time also on translation, uh, translating The Imitation of Christ, St. Teresa's Story of a Soul, and single-handedly translating the St. Jerome Vulgate into English, which in some respects obviously was his most mammoth achievement. But through all of that activity and through all of his years, through all of his years of activity, there was one project that was dearest to his heart, and it was this book, which I happen to have here, which is called Enthusiasm, subtitled A Chapter in the History of Religion. It took him 30 years to write, uh, partly because he was so busy doing other things, um, and partly because he wanted to refine it as much as possible. When he started writing it, he said, as a young man, his idea was 
to write a sort of triumphant refutation of all heresy. It would be the book that showed how you know, everyone had got everything wrong and where they'd gone wrong and how the Catholics were right. But it turned into something a little different, and we'll see why in a moment. What's the central, central thesis of the book? It's this. We know that uh, strange phenomena, such as, say, visions, stigmata, prophecy and miracle working are a part of human history and not just Catholic history either. Um, there have been plenty of Protestant groups and all sorts of other interesting religion groups that have seen these things as somehow uh, integral to the spiritual life or even to salvation. And we know that there is a right way and a wrong way to approach these phenomena. Similarly, a sense of frustration is a recurring part of human history, especially religious history. Um, it might be frustration at the example of the clergy, or it might be frustration um, when you, you see the increasing laxness of lay people. Um, people have a tendency to look back to previous eras, which they see were maybe brighter and stronger than the present day. And this often comes with a desire to reform the church, um, to be some outstanding kind of Christian. And we know, too, that there is a right way and the wrong way to deal with that frustration. And what Knox does is trace the movements throughout history of groups who have gone about these things the wrong way, who have maybe shared phenomena with Catholics, with mainstream Catholics, who have shared um, a certain sense of frustration or confusion with uh, mainstream Catholics, but who have, who have dealt with these things in their own way. So he begins with uh, the Maverick Corinthians and St. Paul's letters and then travels through Montanists and Donatists in the early church, then various uh, Protestant sects such as the Quakers. He looks at Jansenists and Quietists and goes up to the modern evangelical revivalists. And he does this not just to catalogue them um, and not to demonise them either, um, but to try to understand them, to try to understand what made each group, what made each reformer tick, so that we ourselves can better understand our own responses to these phenomena. Now, I mentioned that his original plan was to sort of write this great refutation of all heresies. Two things changed that. One was um, that he mellowed with age and, you know, became, became more tolerant and interested in people just as people. Uh, but another reason that the plan changed was because he became fascinated uh, not so much with the, the errors or the sort of dogmatic heresies and things, but he noticed that there were recurring themes or recurring qualities that popped up in each dissident group. So even when they had quite different theologies, they still all shared certain recurring characteristics. Um, for example, they all shared a fascination with the end days, um, a belief in the imminence of the second coming, a fascination with what you might call paranormal activity to different degrees. They all shared a belief in the, this thing that the Quakers called the inner light, a sort of conviction that God was speaking directly to the individual without reference to, to the community or to a hierarchy. They all shared a sense of frustration either with the Catholic Church or with Christianity in general, um, with the sins of its members. They often all shared a desire to, to be the best of their group, the best of their community. 
Um, and there was also, of course, that recurring belief that they were members of an elect, uh, members of you know, these most particular special Christians. And he, he saw that popping up um, each time, even, even, though, even though they all ended up thinking that God was saying something different to them. There were still these recurring themes, and he became fascinated by that recurring pattern. And so he, each time he unpacks each of these qualities and sees how they're woven um, into the minds of each group and how they're woven into the theology of each group. And as he goes along, he supplies very solid explanations of Catholic theology at each point um, so that we can properly uh, compare and contrast the enthusiast understanding with the Catholic understanding. So, for example, um, in the chapter on the quietists, who had their own very specific ideas about, about prayer and contemplation, um, he gives a very thorough explanation of the Catholic teaching about meditation and contemplation, uh, both so that we can understand how the quietists were motivated, um, but also how they went wrong. All of that sounds very heavy. Um, he... Was he is well, well he was and still is renowned for his wit and for his humour um, and there were like there were definitely points at which I laughed out loud just because of the way that he expressed things. But I have made a startling discovery and that is that not everyone likes British prose of the 1930s. Um, I met I I did I was talking about this book uh, to a priest and said oh guess what I'm going to talk about enthusiasm and he said oh that was so stodgy and pompous <laughs> I was whole oh, completely deflated. Um, but even, even this priest, um, who didn't like Knox's writing at all, he said that he made sure he read the first chapter of the book, and he said that he felt everyone should read the first chapter of the book, because in that chapter, Knox summarises the overall thesis that he then unpacks in the book. Um, so there's still, there's, there's a lot to learn just from the first chapter. So I thought, well, really, there's two ways to read the book. You can either read it from beginning to end, you know, as it's meant to be read, but if you're the sort of person who doesn't like British prose from the 1930s, uh, you can still read the first chapter and learn a lot. Um, the main disadvantage of it, unfortunately, is that it was written for a more educated generation, which means that the passages in French are not translated, um, and the occasional quotes in Latin and Greek, but mostly the French, which often isn't a problem, but there are a couple of chapters where there's a lot of French. Uh, I'm going to read you a sample, just because I like it. Um, <laughs> to maybe find out whether or not you like British prose from the 1930s. Um, this is just from the chapter on the quietists, where he, he spent some time going into the character of the woman who, Madame Guillon, who wasn't exactly what you'd call like the foundress, but she was the, the great influence within quietism. Um, and he describes... Uh, her, well, not only the way she talks about herself, but also her relationship with the spiritual director. Here we go. He says, uh, There is disproportion in the, in the avidity with which she records her ill health, her discomforts, her mortifications. Perhaps she did have her teeth pulled out when they were perfectly sound for the sake of, her, for the, sake of the pain. We may believe her, if we like, when she tells us how she used to kneel on venomous snakes in the woods or how she preserved an attitude of complete abandonment in the presence of a dangerous bull. But if so, we shall be inclined to agree with Dean Inge about her sanity. Uh, later, 
So he, by dint of constantly repeating the admiring remarks other people have made about her, she contrives to give a good account of herself. It is difficult to isolate passages to illustrate the self-complacency of hers. Perhaps the most revealing is that which she describes how she trained her new director, the unfortunate Lacombe, this poor priest, at the cost of purgatorial suffering to her, worse than any pain she ever felt in his life, his resistance to her doctrine of prayer was broken down. Yet he is still blamed, because when they get to Turin, he has no lights by which to direct her. Worse still, he disagrees with her judgments about certain souls, which he wrongly supposes to be perfect. Sometimes he tries to conceal these infidelities of his, but Madame Guillon always knows. It causes a separation between them, and for him, being separated from her means being separated from God. Later still, he is uh, taken in by the dissimulation of a girl whose dispositions she has been able to recognise at once. It is only on their return to Paris that she fully makes him understand the worthlessness of all visions, revelations and interior locutions as, com as compared with those immediate communications which she is privileged to receive. Was there ever a mystic who felt so sure that she was right and so sure that her director was wrong? To the last, her letters to him are all lectures. His to her are those of a miserable creature who is sent to her as an added cross to drag her through the mud and crucify her. There's lots more about them, but the poor priest, he suffered so much. That's enthusiasm. The next book on the list might be better described uh, not so much as a book that Catholics need to read or have to read, but books Catholics should know about, possibly to get other people to read. Um, I've had two experiences which taught me something very important that's related to this book. Uh, on one occasion, I was debating, I think, about women's ordination with a friend who was a lecturer at the University of Cambridge in England. And she said to me at one point, Lucy, it's very difficult for me to hear what you say. It's difficult for me to respect what you say because I'm a lecturer at Cambridge and you haven't really done anything with your life. So it's, I know, she didn't even mean to be mean. She was just, that was just how she felt. And she said, so it's, it's hard for me to, like, to, hear, to listen to you in this way. On another occasion, um, I was talking with a Russian Orthodox guy at uni. We were talking about the Filioque clause and the creed. And I can't remember what I said. It was, I said, obviously said something that, that worked because he suddenly froze and you could see the idea sinking into his head and, and horror passed across his face. And then he drew himself up with resolution and said, there are two reasons why I don't have to listen to anything you say. First, you're a woman. And second, you're a Catholic. And then a helpful Maronite in the room said, I disagree with the second point, but not the first. <laughs> um, but what they, um, <laughs> what both of those experiences made me realise is that whether we admit it or not, most people have a fairly, and we're probably the same way, have a fairly fixed idea about where truth is going to come from or about who has the right to be listened to Given, on, on any given subject matter. Um, I mean, so for the first, for the first friend, um, she sort of had the idea that you had to be an, an, an intellectual in order to count when you said something. And you know, for this guy too, the, the idea that 
truth might somehow be embedded in a woman was like it was too much to take. Um, and this is especially true uh, for us, um, or in terms of evangelization, when it comes to the subject matter of evolution, we face there a very great disadvantage because when people wonder about evolution or when they want to learn more about it, the face of authority that comes into their minds doesn't look like a miscellaneous Catholic layperson who has an article in his hand which was probably photocopied and you know and is interwoven with, with religious you know with religious arguments and religious ideas. Um, whether we like it or not, the the face of authority in people's minds looks like Richard Dawkins or looks like maybe Stephen Jay Gould or you know atheists really. And it's not it's not just because say in Dawkins' case, it's not just because you know his books are in mainstream bookshops and it's not just because they're well produced and they look glossy, but it's because he's a scientist. And as far as anyone is aware, there's no reason to doubt the word of a scientist. You know, why would you? Um, they don't need to to stop to ask if any of his statements have actually overstepped the bounds of science and have actually stumbled, sort of, however blindly, into philosophy. Um, and that means that that even for us to speak about the Catholic position on evolution looks strange. Even before anyone gets to analysing whether our arguments are any good, the mere fact that we want to put something forward looks strange. Why would we argue with science, you know, and so on and so forth? And that's where the next book comes in. It's called Evolution as a Religion by Mary Mitchley um, and was published in 1985. Um, Mitchley's a, a British moral philosopher who was the senior lecturer in philosophy at the University of Newcastle upon Tyne. Um, and she describes philosophy this way. Philosophy is like plumbing. That is something that nobody notices until it goes wrong. Then suddenly we become aware of some bad smells and we have to take up the floorboards and look at the concepts of even the most ordinary piece of thinking. The great philosophers noticed how badly things were going wrong and made suggestions about how they could be dealt with. Importantly for, I think for this book, especially in terms of sharing it, is that um, this particular writer is neither religious nor anti-religious. So she herself is a no particular religion. Um, I don't think she practices anything and she has no particular religious agenda to push. But she's not actually anti-religious either. I mean, she she accepts a lot of evolutionary teaching. But, for example, she says this um, about religion in another one of her books. It turns out that the evils which have infested religion are not confined to it, but are ones that can accompany any successful human institution. Nor is it even clear that religion itself is something that the human race either can or should be cured of. All of which means is she's able to keep her personal issues with faith out of a scientific discussion about evolution. And the purpose of this book, of evolution as a religion, is to show the extent to which many evolutionary scientists go beyond the limits of science when they talk about evolution. Uh, she notes that evolutionary language, um, with, for example, she talks a lot about Richard Dawkins, um, she notes that their language has become more and more religious and that evolutionary theory does, in effect, substitute for religious thought in the minds um, of, many, of many contemporary scientists. And she shows that this represents a corruption of science 
um, and then throughout the book outlines all the negative effects of this corruption of science um, and is strongly opposed to the attempt to make science a substitute either for the you know, humanities or for theology or for any discipline for which it's not actually equipped. <coughs> Since we're not going to be able to explain the Catholic teaching about God's role in creation until to other people, until they can shape the idea that everything a scientist says is a scientific fact. And the, the value of this book is to show that not everything a scientist says is a scientific fact. And she does this in a way that is uh, very clear and concise and logical and pretty free of sort of rhetoric and grandiose emotion. So it's something that can be readily shared uh, with, with non-Catholics. Um, I mean, having said that, I've only ever actually lent it to one non-Catholic in my life. However, he is now Catholic, so if it didn't actually bring him into the church, it, it certainly didn't hinder um, his, you know, embracing the Catholic faith. Um, it, it was a good read, and so I recommend it for that, for that reason. On a completely different note, um, I mean, evolution is certainly one subject that, that grips us a lot uh, these days. But another topic which has become of more importance in recent years, I think, um, and which interests Catholics, even I don't know about anyone else, is the question of the imagination. We can't deny that the imagination exists. We certainly see that some people have more of it than others. But what are we supposed to do with it, especially when it comes to reading and storytelling, and especially when it comes to um, fairy stories or fantastical stories, um, stories involving you know, magic and creatures or unicorns or whatever, things that we know don't exist. Catholic culture uh, in the past, or European Catholic culture anyway, has often been, or has historically been infused with, with fairy tales and with imaginative stories and with legends and all sorts of quirky customs, not because we think that any use of the imagination is good, but because it has somehow become interwoven uh, with the rest of our lives or with our art and our entertainment. I brought one example just to illustrate my point, which I think is, which I really enjoyed the first time I read it. This is not a book that everyone should read. It's just something that will illustrate this point. Um, a 13th century poem, the name of which I can't pronounce and I'm open to suggestions, but it's something like Nibelungenlied, um, a German poem from the 13th century has a little section in which the, uh, the characters, uh, the characters, a bunch of men, the captain of the ship and one priest are travelling from Burgundy to Hungary um, over the water. And as they travel, they can't remember why they're travelling, but as they travel, some nixies, some water sprites come out of the water and prophesy to them that um, everyone on that boat is going to die except the priest. And the captain is very is not happy about this because he says, well, how am I going to go to the king and tell him that we're all going to die except the priest? So his solution is to throw the priest overboard, try to drown him. Um, and this is what happens. It says, the priest made great efforts to keep himself afloat, thinking to save his life if only someone would help him. This, however, was ruled out for mighty Hagen vehemently thrust into the bottom to the scandal of everyone there. Seeing no aid forthcoming, the miserable cleric turned back to the shore to his great discomfort, and although he could not swim, he was succored by the hand of the Lord and reached dry land in safety. Standing up, he shook his cassock, 
And this brought it home to Hagen that there would be no escaping the fate which the wild Nixies had foretold. They do some more things. Their mounts were harnessed, the sumpters were laden. They had as yet sustained no hurt to annoy them on the journey, except for the royal chaplain. He had to foot it back to Burgundy. Um, and it interested me when I read that, that in the, in the one paragraph, you could have you know, a priest, dressed like a priest in a cassock, being helped by the hand of God, and also water nixies, sprites, which have never existed, making prophecies. In the same way, in other, in other parts of the story, um, you'll see a character who gets up and she goes to Mass and she goes to Vespers, and then she comes out of Vespers and throws on her invisibility cloak and goes off and does stuff, or then she goes to Vespers and takes off her magic ring and gives it to the guy who's going to go and murder someone else with them in the ring of fire. There's, there's a blend of, of reality and imagination together. Whereas Protestant culture historically has been not quite like, it's hard, I mean, it's difficult to generalize too much about uh, Protestant culture because it's so diverse, but historically it is a little more opposed to, uh, to the use of the imagination. Um, so that there have been eras, for instance, in which uh, Presbyterians thought it was wrong even to read a novel or to watch a play because that would mean imagining that the, the people in the, the story existed and, and they didn't and was that a lie and that kind of thing. And it is a difficult question what we're supposed to do with the imagination because it, it can go very, very wrong. And with this in mind, there is one book which I think Catholics do need to know about and that is Tree and Leaf by J.R.R. Tolkien. In this book, he explores and he explains the use of the imagination in two ways. First, in an essay, which is called On Fairy Stories, and second, in an allegory, like a little fairy tale, which is called Leaf by Niggle. Uh, he introduces uh, the essay this way, quite simply. He says, the aim of the essay is simple. I propose to speak about fairy stories though I am aware that this is a rash adventure. Now, the atmosphere isn't of the essay. It's not like a sort of Thomistic scheme of, like, here are the six ways in which you may use the imagination and the four unhealthy ways and the six <laughs> subdivisions like that. It's, the atmosphere is more like um, a sort of a fireside chat on a winter's night, if you can imagine that the curtains are drawn and the fire's crackling and Tolkien has his pipe and he's smoking and he's sharing, he's sharing his thoughts about what fairy stories are for, about what the imagination is for, um, about, about what it can do for us. And so throughout the course of the essay, he examines, for example, the origins and the definition of fairy story, uh, how these stories developed, the influence of mythology and legend and folk tales. Uh, he also discusses the use of fairy stories, both for adults and children. And interestingly, he doesn't see fairy stories as meant uh, particularly for children and certainly not for all children. Rather, um, he sees them as meant for a particular kind of person who happens to start out as a child and then become an adult. Um, he says it's a certain child and a certain adult who will benefit from them. Um, more importantly, he, he starts, I don't, it's maybe too strong to say he gives guidelines, but he, he, he shares his ideas about uh, the healthy use of the imagination and contrasts it with what he calls morbid fantasy, of which he sees surrealist art as an example. And I wish he had gone into the reasons why he saw surrealist art as an example of morbid fantasy, but he doesn't. Um, instead, after 
that tantalizing little glimpse, um, he develops the reader's understanding of what he calls subcreation, which is our pale imitation of and participation in God's creative power. I mean, God could bring a universe out of nothing, kind of drawing it out of his mind. Well, he obviously can't do that. But when, when we imagine things that could be, when we imagine what might be, we do in a, in a little way participate in that ability to bring something out of nothing. He talks about the relationship between the primary world, which is the world all around us, and the secondary world, which is this world created by the mind and the meaning invested in the real world. And this isn't just limited to fairy stories. Um, I mean, we, we can say, imagine a unicorn, we can, we can, in a sense, bring into existence an animal that, that doesn't really exist, but we can also bring meaning out of colours that isn't necessarily there. If you think of the colours in a football match, for example, they mean something a lot more. Red and white or black and white or whatever means a lot more in a football ground during a football match than it does just in the ordinary course of events. He talks, too, of the relationship between fantasy and reason, um, how, they have, how they help each other, how they sustain each other. He considers the value of well-crafted fairy stories. And finally, he relates all storytelling to the resurrection of Christ. Um, and he, he sees the resurrection as the central act from which all truth, all art, and all storytelling is drawn. He says this, but in God's kingdom, the presence of the greatest, that is the resurrection, does not depress the small, our, our stories. Redeemed man is still man. Story, fantasy, still go on and should go on. The Evangelium has not abrogated legends. It has hallowed them, especially the happy ending. The Christian still has to work with mind as well as body to suffer, hope and die. But he may now perceive that all his bents and faculties have a purpose which can be redeemed. So great is the bounty with which he has been treated that he may now perhaps fairly dare to guess that in fantasy he may actually assist in the affoliation and multiple enrichment of creation. All tales may come true, and yet at the last, redeemed, they may be as like and as unlike the forms that we give them as man finally redeemed will be like and unlike the fallen that we know. The essay is best read in tandem with the short story uh, called Leaf by Niggle. And this is the story of a man named Niggle who spends his life working on a painting that is never finished and who is mocked by his neighbour because of his obsession, his seeming obsession with this painting. Then the neighbour finds himself in the next life and sees things differently. Uh, the story, I mean, it is an allegory, and, but it's an allegorical exploration of the role of art and the imagination, especially as it relates to the spiritual life. Um, it's also, I think, a story of great hope, especially um, for someone who starts out with a great plan and doesn't see it turn out the way he thinks it's going to. Thinks it's going to. It asks, what do our efforts mean to God? What do our dreams mean to God? How can they be of service to our neighbour? Well, read Leaf by Nickel to find out. Which, which brings us to the fiction. Uh, and, the, and I have this book here. Uh, 
to write the story of a saint in a fictional format in a way that has both theological and artistic merit is very, very difficult, especially to write one that can be enjoyed by non-Catholics as well as Catholics. One author has managed this, however, and that was Evelyn War. War, like seemingly all the best writers, uh, was a convert to Catholicism. And it was interesting. He came into the church in what must have seemed like an absolute golden age of conversion. Um, apparently, I read one statistic that said in Britain alone during the 1930s, the church was receiving 12,000 converts, approximately 12,000 converts a year. And he was received in, in the 1930s. In fact, in 1930, after a very tumultuous use, um, his conversion caused a sensation. It was, it was literally you know, front page news because he seemed like the last person in the world who would turn to religion. He was, uh, his, uh, was a young novelist. Um, his novel, Vile Bodies, which had attracted a lot of notice, had been called the ultra-modern novel. He had a history of drunkenness and sexual license. And now he was turning not only to religion, but to Catholicism, which wasn't even a respectable religion. Um, and this was so, this was so mind-blowing that he was actually given a full-page full spread in one of the newspapers um, in order to describe his reasons for converting. And it was interesting, because he wasn't the sort of man who converts because he's had um, a wonderful religious experience or because he's suddenly filled with strong, positive feelings about God. I mean, it was almost the opposite. Um, he remarked in one of his essays that in Britain, beauty and ceremony belonged to the Anglican Church, whereas the Catholic Church was much more likely to look like an ugly square red, red brick building filled with Irishmen or Poles. Um, even after his conversion, uh, he struggled with a lot of the sins that had plagued him all the way throughout his life. Um, the difference pre and post conversion was that he now knew that these things were wrong and that he was obliged to struggle and he was determined to do what was right and this is reflected in his books um, they're filled with Catholics who, who struggle with sin but who are finally given a chance to make an act of heroic virtue and who do usually take it so for example in the novel that's usually regarded as, as his classic or his ultimate novel Brides Had Revisited we see a young woman who struggles with adultery and with divorce um, until towards the end our Lord finally wins her heart and at very great cost to her personal happiness it has to be said she does what is right uh, and this leads to another person's conversion. Uh, it's in this novel incidentally that Chesterton's influence is most clear. Similarly um, in the trilogy known as the Sword of Honor trilogy which I have to say I couldn't finish um, and I think is very much a trilogy which is going to be enjoyed by men more than women because it's filled with scenes in the army and I know guys who love it and I haven't yet met a woman who could get through the whole trilogy. Um, but I understand that it ends this way. The central character is a man who is a complete failure at everything in life, including marriage. Um, and I understand that towards the end of the trilogy, his wife conceives a child by another man and he realises that by accepting and raising this child as his own, he could actually do that one heroic act of his life. He, he realises that this is the act that has been handed to him, and he does it. But War is never pious, and he's never sappy. Um, as a writer, he had a very incisive and sarcastic streak, and some of his stories were just, were just plain gruesome. Um, for example, in one book, 
Uh, there's a woman who gets incinerated and then crushed to death in a funeral home for pets. And in another book, there's this poor man who ends up trapped in the jungle forever with a cunning lunatic reading Charles Dickens over and over with no escape. It's awful. It's absolutely awful. So why would that kind of writer decide to write the fictional biography of a saint, especially one about whom we don't know very much? Well, I mean, the simple answer is we don't really know, but he, he does give us some clues. First of all, um, in his introduction to the novel, he says that Helena is actually written primarily as a story to be enjoyed. So it's not a substitute for, bio for biography. It's not a substitute for an essay about Catholicism um, or any of these things. But it was... I might just... It was kind of prompted by a comment that he overheard. Um, he says, It is reported, and I for one believe it, that some few years ago a lady prominent for her hostility to the church returned from a visit to Palestine in a state of exaltation. I got the real lowdown at last, she told her friends. The whole story of the crucifixion was made up by a British woman named Ellen. Why, the, the guy showed me the very place where it happened. Even the priests admit it. They call their chapel the invention of the cross. So he didn't exactly write the book in order to refute this particular woman, but some of the wrongness of her comment was there in his mind. And in some ways, I think it is the book that he was born to write. Um, Brides Had Revisited will always be... You know, it will always be the classic war. It will always be the ultimate novel. But I think in Helena, um, some of the, the, not weaker aspects, but some of the maybe more challenging aspects of his writing are moderated. You know, that, that edge of sarcasm, the edge of depression, the edge of despair. That, that's moderated. But all his strengths, um, you know, his amazing ability to construct a sentence, for example, they're all still present. So what we have is a story with real sinew, um, you know, not, not sugar-coated in any way. It's a story that you can really think about, but without that slightly savage edge that, that might hurt a more sensitive reader. Uh, it covers Helena's life from, from girlhood to death, uh, both pre and post her conversion, um, and brings in at the end, the end of the story, her journey to find the true cross. And we see a driving motive in her life, which is the truth, for facts. The whole way through the book, she's searching for a religion in which someone can answer the question, how do you know? I'll give you this little segment. There's, um, uh, there's a character that she meets early on who disappears and then he reappears as a, a, sort, of, a sort of Gnostic, a, a kind of the ancient version of, of a New Age sage who, who very much enjoys you know, giving his talks and collecting money for his wisdom. Um, and she's taken to hear a talk of his. And it goes this way. Sophia, he was saying, who as Astarte abandoned her flesh entire, and as Helena was the partner of Simon, the standing one, she of many forms, who is the last and darkest of the thirty aeons of light, and by her presumptuous love became mother of the seven material rulers, and he goes on and on. All things are doubled against one another, said Marcius, and Minervina nodded. So the things of error come, then the gnosis intervenes. Dosophus knew himself not to be the standing one, acknowledged his error, and in his knowledge was made one with the mensual twenty-nine, and with Helena the thirtieth half one. 
The voice rippled on, and when Helena at length had hold of herself, was at the peroration. The hostess said her words of thanks. I'm sure we are all a great deal clearer than we were on this important topic. The lecturer has kindly consented to answer any questions. No one spoke immediately. Then someone asked, I was not quite sure whether you said that the demiurge was an aeon. No, madam, it was one of the aims of my poor discourse to demonstrate that he was not. Oh, thank you. There was a further pause. Then, in clear schoolroom tone, Helena said, What I should like to know is, when and where did all this happen? And how do you know? Minervina frowned. Marcius replied, These things are beyond time and space. Their truth is integral to their proposition, and by nature transcends material proof. Then, please, how do you know? By a lifetime of patient and humble study, Your Majesty. But study of what? That, I fear, would take a lifetime of particular, to particularise. Mm -hmm. it goes on. Ultimately, in, in the novel, the finding of the cross isn't for the purpose just of having a really cool, miracle-working relic. It's because the cross is a fact. And it's about this, that our faith is founded not just upon a really good idea, but upon a fact of history, a fact that's as solid as a piece of wood. Uh, the cross slices through all these clamouring voices and these conflicting inter interpretations of itself precisely because it is a solid and irrefutable thing. And at the same time, uh, this is where War's Genius comes in, the novel doesn't read like a piece of religious polemic. It stands alone just as an engaging story about a woman who has her own, her own issues and her own feelings and has to deal with her own, her own personal tragedies. And it's a pleasure to read. I know someone who read it in a day. Um, the other advantage of it, I'll turn it sideways for a moment, is that it's short, which a lot of great novels aren't, and most great Catholic novels aren't. So there's a short book. Um, the next one that I want to talk about is also very not short, um, and that's, the, uh, that's Kristen Labyrinth Data, which is actually a trilogy, part of the reason why it's not short, uh, written by a woman named Sigrid Unset who, again, was a convert to the Catholic faith. She converted in 1924 uh, when she was 42 years old. Uh, she, uh, she was Norwegian, and her conversion also caused a sensation because she was, she was a respected novelist at the time, and Catholics apparently were quite kind of a suspect minority in Norway. Um, and her previous novels were quite sensational. Her first novel was published when she was in her 20s, I think when she was 22 or 24, and it opened with the words, I have been unfaithful to my husband, and this was a groundbreaking scandal and all this kind of thing. And so, so you know, the woman who'd written all this groundbreaking scandalous stuff then turned and became a Catholic, and no one understood. Um, so for a while there was, there was a certain amount, apparently, of literary polemic about her, um, but this died down um, in the wake of her subsequent novels, which kept getting better and better and which culminated in her receiving the Nobel Prize for Literature in 1928. Edith Stein actually refers to Unset in her book Woman. Uh, she takes one of the characters from one of her novels and analyses her, but it's another one of the novels which I haven't read and don't have a reference for. Uh, Kristen Labrinsdatter, this trilogy, is set in the Norway of the 13th and 14th centuries. Um, Unset had a fascination, even as a teenager, with uh, the medieval period, with medieval history, 
which I can't help wondering, you know, if that was something that like triggered her interest in the faith later on. But anyway, and the trilogy traces the life um, of one Catholic woman, Kristen, from her girlhood uh, through her marriage, her widowhood, and to the various things that happened to her after that. It contains what I think some of the most powerful expressions of motherhood that I've ever seen in literature. And Unset is able to convey a lot of the sufferings um, of, of a young woman's life and of motherhood, you know, things like labour pain or the joy of children or the disappointment with one husband. She can convey all the sufferings without the rancour or the bitterness that really spoils um, a lot of... of well, a lot of modern literature by modern female female writers. There are a lot of women, a lot of women who are very good at describing the weaknesses of men, um, but are not. They can be a little bit grudging about their strengths. Um, and with Unset, it is it isn't so. And in Kristen Labrinstadter, we see male goodness and strength conveyed as truthfully as their weaknesses and their flaws. Uh, you wouldn't read this trilogy to, for example, to learn theology. Um, it doesn't have a specifically theological point to make, um, unlike Helena, for example. I don't know if you'd need to read it all at once. I mean, I read the three books in a row from beginning to end and did partway through feel kind of like I was swimming upstream against a really, really hard current. Um, but it was definitely worth it. I'd recommend the trilogy to anyone either who is a woman or who would like to marry a woman. Um, it's, I think, a very illuminating read for a male reader because, well, because women can be confusing. But, you know, one minute they laugh and then they cry and then they say, it's fine, it's fine, it's just fine. And, and you, you can tell that it's not fine, but you don't know what she really means and you don't know what to say next. It's a, it is a good introduction to how women think um, and, and to why they feel that way. And particularly the sort of woman who has a willful and grudging streak, but who also has a genuine desire to be good and to be happy. Happily, a few days ago, someone sent me an article. I, I was at one point thinking, gee, Lucy, you know, are you choosing really weird books? And then someone sent me an article, and there it was. It was called A Medieval Marriage Manual for Moderns. Um, by some chap who is teach, currently teaching honours in English and world literatures at Tennessee Technological University. Um, but this is what he says. He, he's written a letter to his granddaughter saying, basically saying that Kristen Lavender <coughs> is one of the best books ever and is a wonderful preparation for marriage. But this is what he says. I lived through much of the 20th century and dutifully read its literary canons, Faulkner, Joyce, Proust, Wolfe, Lawrence, Kafka, Mann, Borges, and their cousins and imitators. For me, the smoke has cleared after a century of rebellion and narrative experimentation, and I find two great works standing above the rubble of innovation and deconstruction, J.R.R. Tolkien's Lord of the Rings, and Sigrid Udset's Kristen Labrinstata, the Chart and, and Notre Dame of Modern Narrative Fiction. He says, what is it about? Everything. Growing up, families, nature, sin, sex, death, society, religion, power, politics, violence, war, love and God. There is absolutely no narrowness or specialisation in this book. 
It gives us a world whole from heaven down to the pebbles of scree that litter the Norwegian landscape with profoundly imagined characters that live and change on every page. A great fan of English literature, especially Shakespeare, Unset knew that what every audience really wants is life, life fully imagined, life in all its dimensions, and that no amount of mere technique or experimentation will ever give us that. That's why I have my students in world literature read it, because Sigrid Unset achieves something no other novelist can even touch, Tolstoy perhaps accepted, a steady, deep and whole vision of reality rendered alive by a narrative master who believes in the story more than in the author. He also says, for young Catholics preparing for marriage, I'd suggest a long retreat with this novel as the sole text. <laughs> I don't know if it's that good, but, um, but I, was, I was glad to see that someone else you knew. Was she a good Catholic when she wrote it? Or? She was by the end. Yeah, it was. It was Yes, and I mean another uh, another um, sort of importance of this book is that it's proof that acquiring faith doesn't have to diminish art. Um, it's true that some people do start out with a talent for their particular art, and then they convert to any given religion and suddenly feel that they have to sort of use their art solely for proselytization, and their art is diminished after that. Um, at the other extreme, you have people who assume that if you have any faith at all, you couldn't possibly produce anything worthwhile. And I think this is what people thought when Unset converted. It was this catastrophe because this rising Norwegian star had suddenly gone and done this crazy thing. But she showed with the books that she wrote after her conversion that faith and art don't have to be at odds, and then they can actually um, they actually can, you know, they increase your art if you use them both properly. That's one trilogy. The next, the next book actually has four books in the sequence. I hesitated a little bit before including um, this this next book um, in the talk, simply because I think its its appeal will be much more limited. But then I thought I've had so many conversations with different people about about whether or not there are any Catholics doing any great writing, you know, in in the modern era, and people sometimes say, why is it that we're always looking back to Chesterton, we're always looking back to Moriac or Belloc or, or, or whoever, why isn't anyone doing anything now? And I thought, well, yes, if someone is doing something now, we ought to know about it, even if we don't like in particular the genre in which he writes. And so, and for that reason, I want to talk about uh, some fiction called The Book of the New Sun by Jean Wolfe. And this is actually a series of four books of science fiction and fantasy. The first is called uh, Shadow of the Torturer, then Claw of the Conciliator, The Sword of the Lictor, and The Citadel of the Autarch. And you can hear just from the titles that they're not going to be the sort of books that everyone will want to read. It's never going to be. He's never going to be the, Dan, you know, the Catholic Dan Brown. But there was something very interesting. According to the blurb on my copy of Book of the New Sun, Gene Wolfe was recently rated the best science fiction fantasy writer ever after Tolkien. Now, I tried to find out who did this voting, where the poll was, who ran it, whatever. I could find out nothing. Um, there was no information anywhere. But if we do trust what my blurb, says, my blurb says, and we do take it that, yes, he was recently voted the best science fiction, uh, science fiction writer, then that, then that leaves us with something very interesting, because Wolfe, like Tolkien, was a convert to Catholicism, which means that in the minds of 
sort of popular or the minds of the popular audience, the greatest the greatest imaginative writers ever were both Catholic. And I think that leaves people with something to think about. Wolf differs from most other great Catholic novelists, um, and certainly from all the other novelists in this talk, in that he's not actually dead yet, um, and he's still considered one of the world's foremost sci-fi and fantasy authors. He also differs from many other writers and in that he didn't start out life as an academic or as a student of the humanities or as a struggling writer. Um, he was an engineer. I found, I found this quote in the Wikipedia. One little-known engineering achievement of Wolf's is a contribution to the development of the mass production machine used to make Pringles potato chips. <laughs> so he's, he's, like, he's like something that's come out of nowhere. We, often, we look to the world of literature and say, well, what's happening in the world of literature? Oh, nothing, that kind of thing. And while we're sitting over here looking at this particular world, here's an engineer who's done something about Pringles potato chips who just happens to have an enormous imagination and be Catholic doing something by himself, blossoming up over on this side, and there's all these other people over here noticing him, and maybe not necessarily us. He's an engineer with an amazing, amazing imagination and gift for language. Um, I don't know much about his conversion. We know that he converted when he married. Um, usually it says he converted for the sake of his wife, but it, that can't have been the only reason. It's obvious that something stuck. Um, it wasn't just some sort of ritual act that he went through for her sake because his faith has been absorbed into his fiction. Now, he's not a, a sort of best-selling author, like something like The Da Vinci Code or, or, I don't know, Tom Clancy or something that everyone's read or everyone's going to read. But of his genre, he is one of the most highly regarded authors. I wrote, read um, one author whose name I neglected to date down, but this is what he said. He said, Gene Wolfe is the greatest writer in the English language alive today. Let me repeat that. Gene Wolfe is the greatest writer in the English language alive today. I mean it. Shakespeare was a better stylist. Melville was more important to American letters. And Charles Dickens had a defter hand at creating characters. But among living writers, there is nobody who can even approach Gene Wolfe for the brilliance of prose, clarity of thought, and depth in meaning. Now, there are some things to, say, to be said first before I describe this book. Some important disclaimers. If you don't read much fiction, um, or if you're giving advice to someone who does not read much fiction, then this series is not for you. This is not the way to branch out into reading fiction. His prose, his prose is brilliant, but it's, it's very dense. It's very... It's sometimes described as dense and sometimes rich, but let's just say you need a lot of practice at reading. One person described it this way. Imagine a Star Wars style space opera penned by G.K. Chesterton in the throes of a religious conversion. It's a very <laughs> wild ride. Secondly, if you need or if you prefer your entertainment to be G-rated or even PG-rated, this series is not for you. Uh, it's a very male fantasy. Um, you know, there are women and there is blood. Uh, if you're the the chief character is um, he's a member of the Guild of Torturers. So if you're squeamish about torture, don't pick up these books. However, if you love language, if you read a great deal of imaginative fiction, and you feel that the genre has become stale, if you're looking for a colossus, um, then you want to read it. Especially if you want to find a, a kind of wildly different example of how 
of how aspects of the faith can be woven into something that's completely original. Um, as I, yeah, it, it's a very male fantasy, but it is worth it. Why? Well, this is what it's about. The story is set a million years in the future, during a time of decay, when the sun is dying, no one knows how to, so, how, how to save it, the earth is old, cities are crumbling, uh, the guilds are dying out, and there's lots of corruption. There's corruption throughout the, uh, the world. This means that there is an atmosphere of great decay, but it's not like other books which are also, which are also about decay. For example, um, there's a famous, another famous trilogy called the Gormenghast Trilogy, which is set in a castle with a decaying family. It's a similar sort of thing, just the, the universe is the castle. And it, it's, it's, very, it's very well written, but it's very unpleasant. It has the sort of, I don't know if you can think of that smell that flowers have when they're dying and they need to be thrown out. It kind of has that, the Gormenghast Trilogy has that atmosphere. There is, there's something off about it. Um, but it's not the same here. There's, there's decay, corruption throughout the world, evil everywhere. But there's also hope. There is hope that is placed in a mysterious figure who is known only as the conciliator. Now, it's clear in the story that to many people, the conciliator has become just a legend. There are still people who believe in him um, and there are, people, there are people who don't. The hero is not religious, but he's heard the stories. Um, he knows, I, I was looking for the exact quote and I couldn't find it, but I'm, I'm pretty sure it was something along, along these lines. People, they know or they believe that at some distant time in the past, the conciliator held his mother in one hand and he held his mother in one hand and heaven in the other. And between them united heaven and earth, or he, sorry, reconciled heaven and earth. There are religious orders still around, religious sisters dedicated to the conciliator, who nonetheless will tell him that the figure is just a cultural myth and an heroic legend. A good myth, but myth nonetheless. Anyway, the protagonist gets swept up in a series of events which send him on a journey. He gets sent into exile and various things. And as he journeys, he acquires something interesting by accident, a famous relic, which is known as the claw of the conciliator. Now, he acquires it by accident and spends a lot of books trying to return it to the religious order from which he got it. But something starts happening en route. The claw, it seems, starts to work miracles, which is very confusing. A lot of them can be explained naturally, but a lot of them can't. And he can't force it to work. Sometimes it heals and sometimes it doesn't. This throws his whole journey into disorder and ultimately has profound consequences for his life. Um, He's sometimes some um, sometimes described as a Christ figure um, because he's meant to go and, go and save the earth and so forth. But Wolf has said no, he's not meant to be a Christ figure. He's more he's a, a the figure of a Christian. He has to who's purified by his journey. He has to discover what he's really meant to do, um, and also has to give up women by the end of the book, which is also very good. Um, and then throughout it, there is there. It, it, and it's because of this claw, it's because of this thing that he discovers that he, he didn't know was true, but he can't argue with it. And so in a sense, it's, it's a similar theme to the theme that we saw in Helena, that the reason that relics and holy places are important is because they remind us that faith is real, that it's located in specific historic events and not just in stories. 
um, the difference is that that's the major theme of Helena, whereas this is just one theme that's woven into the Book of the New Sun. You know, there's a lot more sword fighting than, than, than theology. But it's still there. And Wolfe explains in one interview, he said this, I don't scoff at religion the way many people do when they look at anything that has to do with speculations about things we can't touch. I'm a practicing Catholic, although I don't think that designation would give people much of an idea about what my beliefs are. People tend to have a very limited stereotyped view of what it means to be a Catholic, images taken from movies or anti-Catholic pamphlets, but there's much more to it than that. I know perfectly well, for example, that priests can't walk on water. They're merely human beings who are trying, often unsuccessfully, to live out a very difficult ideal. But I certainly don't dismiss religious or other mystical forms of speculation out of hand. And in the book of the New Sun, I tried to work out some of the implications of my beliefs. The real reason why the book, the series is so great is his power with the English language. Um, I just never realised how elastic a sentence could be. It was though at times I would be thinking, you can't do this with English. It's going to break. It's going to break. But then it wouldn't break. It would snap back into place. And if you like words, it's a very exciting thing to discover. Um, if you don't like words, it'll mean, mean nothing to you. So the book of the new sun, this quartet, is very much what you call a cult book. It's not literary fiction. It's not popular fiction. It's, it's cult fiction, which means that... Uh, very, maybe very few people will want to read it, but those who do will, will love it to be some more think that their universe is being transformed. So it's very different to uh, the last novel that I had to talk about, which is the closest thing I've ever discovered to a universal novel, by which I mean a book that I think, fairly sure, can be enjoyed by almost anyone. So I've saved it to last. I was originally going to put it first, and then somebody said, Lucy, if you get up and say this is the best book ever, no one's going to have a reason to listen to you once you stop talking about it. So I'm going to make sure I put it last. Um, if you only take one book away from this talk, make it this one. Once again, it was written by a convert. Uh, this woman's name was Margaret Rumer Godden, but her, she, as an author she goes under the name Rumer Godden, who was one of the one of the foremost novelists in recent uh, British literary history. She's considered more uh, of a popular writer than a, a popular author than a literary author, which I think means in reality that more people read her books and they're not as angsty as, say, Evelyn Waugh or Graham Greene. Um, her career spanned apparently six decades. She wrote more than 60 books, including novels for both adults and children, uh, short story collections, poetry, plays, and non-fiction. One of her most famous novels is called Black Narcissus, which was published in 1939. This was a long time before her conversion, but even then you could see her interest in Catholicism registering in her fiction. Black Narcissus uh, deals with the struggle of a group of nuns to maintain their convent in a disused Indian palace. Uh, there's a sort of pagan atmosphere of the subcontinent, um, which, which takes over and the ideals of each nun are in turn eroded and overthrown. Um, I haven't seen the film version. Someone told me she saw it. I haven't actually haven't read that novel either. Apparently there's some point at which one nun goes crazy and turns into yeah, and it's very creepy and she has a creepy smile or something. Yes, um, so it's very sensational. Um, but even then, even in a, most, a very sensational story, there was still that 
glimmering, that beginning of an interest in the struggle between action and contemplation and asking what the meaning of the religious life is. And as she continued as a writer, again, even she often included some very poignant examples of Catholicism. Um, again, in 1955, which was still 13 years before her conversion, she published a very beautiful story called An Episode of Sparrows, which features a child, uh, not quite an orphan, but a child whose who's very deep suffering is supported by a growing relationship with Our Lady. It's a beautiful, beautiful book, if you can ever get your hands on it. I think it may be out of print, but you can probably find it online or in a remainder store or something like that. Uh, an episode of Sparrows. Godin became a Catholic in 1968 when she was 61. Uh, she was quoted as saying this, I like the way everything is clear and concise. You'll always be forgiven, but you must know the rules. And sometime, I don't actually have the publication date for the book I actually wanted to talk about. But anyway, some years after that, she published what probably one of her most famous novels, In This House of Breed, which is the book I want to mention. Um, as I said, the closest thing I've ever discovered to a universal novel, which is set, uh, set in an abbey, a monastery, which was modelled on Stanbrook Abbey. Now, part of the book's brilliance is the way that it came to be written. So I'm going to tell you the backstory. She, she, tells, she herself tells this backstory. Uh, her granddaughter had been going through a very difficult pregnancy. Uh, apparently, she had, she had recently miscarried, um, become pregnant again, and the doctors advised, had advised an abortion. They said, this baby is going to die and it will take you with it because you are not strong enough to have this child. The couple refused, point blank, but they did, they did see that the reality was that her life was in danger and the baby's life was in danger. Um, her health was very seriously depleted. So one of uh, Godin's friends said, write to Stanbrook Abbey, for, write to them and ask for prayers. So she did, and the abbess, uh, the then Dame Felicitas Corrigan, wrote back. And Dame Felicitas wrote to uh, Godin's granddaughter every week uh, during the pregnancy. And nine months later, after the baby was born healthy, uh, this was the beginning of a, long, a long-standing friendship between Brimmer, Godden and the Abbess. They sometimes meet. And she tells this story. Uh, I wish, this is, this is a quote from the preface to In This House of Breed. I wish, said Dame Felicitas Corrigan, that someone would write a book about nuns as they really are, not as the author wants them to be. I thought of my novel Black Narcissus and blushed. Um, <coughs> from this comment there followed five years of writing and research that went into the book. Uh, Godin interviewed the nuns of Stanbrook Abbey and as far as was possible wove their stories into the novel. Apparently she also travelled to the Isle of Wight there but I'm not so sure. I'm not sure about that. She, this is another quote from the, um, from the introduction. She mentions that Queen Victoria, when she first heard of the existence of contemplative nuns, said, someone should give these women something to do. <laughs> give these women something to do. Lady Abbess allowed me for one day only to follow Stanbrook's day according to the rule, beginning with lords at five minutes to four in the morning, ending with Compline at eight. I was exhausted. <laughs> there were three nuns who, who were appointed uh, 
to work with her on the draft, not to censor it exactly, but to go through it as she wrote it, to, to check that sort of the details about monastic life were accurate, um, you know, to make sure that, okay, while well, their stories were in there, they still didn't want to be identifiable as individuals, that sort of thing. The result, brilliant. Um, it's not pious. The nuns are not all young and beautiful and living in perfect harmony until they die of tuberculosis at age 24. They have squabbles, crises, illnesses, tests of faith. They have to be reconciled to the events of their respective pasts. And all of this is integrated into a life of liturgical prayer. It was actually it was very difficult to write this section of the talk because I kept you know, picking up the book just to read another little bit and then I think, no, and then pick it up and read a little bit more. It follows the story of a woman uh, named Philippa Talbot who converts to Catholicism and enters religious life at age 42 and who I gather is, is based on a real woman um, in the convent who, who had entered Stanbrook at age 42. And it follows her journey in the religious life. Um, there's the physical struggle to adapt to a totally different way of life, you know, learning to get up at 4 o'clock in the morning to give up cigarettes, to learn Latin when you're tired, um, the personal struggle with her faults that emerges from this, um, the deeper struggle of growing in a mature faith, learning to accept some of the terrible things that have happened to her in the past, and there, you know, there are some genuine horrible things that she has to be reconciled with. And as we follow her story, we're introduced to the other sisters, and their stories are woven into it as well. So, for example, you see one sister who's torn between the active and contemplative life, another sister who's torn between religious life and marriage, um, there's another sister who has you know, a deep, dark secret and who's ashamed of her past and of herself. Um, another sister who is elected to the rank of abbess and faces a whole new set of challenges and struggles as a result of it. There, there are some male characters in the story, but obviously any novel set in a cloistered community of women is going to be you know, largely feminine um, in its characters. And so I think it is a testimony to Godden's God strength as a writer that male readers are able to enjoy the book as much as female readers. They don't feel, you know, they don't feel like they're being sort of swamped by female characters and female insights. Um, I, have, I have one friend who really finds it difficult to read books sort of by women with female characters as the central characters. He always says he feels like he's drowning in estrogen, but he loved in this house of breed. He, he loved, the characters were so real that he, he couldn't leave them behind. Um, there's another scene, um, I know, there's, a, there's another scene where someone sends the sisters a, a giant cheese. Um, and I know one Catholic man who read this book as a non-Catholic and this was the catalyst for him for a series of events which actually led into to his becoming, to being received into the church. The, the novel was the catalyst for his conversion. And shortly after he was received into the church, he sent Roma Godden a giant cheese in memory of that scene. And I really, I hope that when she, she received this cheese, she remembered like that she'd written it or remembered what it was referring to or it, just, it would have looked terribly, terribly strange. Um, that brings me to the end of the novel. I don't know if you want me to mention, I mean, I've been talking for an hour. And also a sampling. Okay, I'll speak quite quickly. Um, I tacked this on the end because I thought I know for a lot of people, the idea of reading poetry or being talked to about poetry is about as attractive as the idea of having teeth pulled without anaesthetic. They would just say, "Why? Like, why do we have to read poems?" Um, 
it was it might have been another Maronite who said that to me. Um, but to my mind, the borderline between great poems and great prayers is very hazy. They're very much like like churches, like cathedrals. I was trying to explain to someone in, in every single church. In every church, you have the tabernacle, you have our Lord in every church, and you have this building around it that contains this tabernacle. And you can you can go around the great cathedrals of the world and experience them in two ways. You can look at the architecture and be moved by the architecture, or you can go straight to the tabernacle. Or you can examine how the church was built, why those stained glass windows are there, and let that lead you, you, you let that inspire you. Um, so that when you get to that tabernacle, you have more to talk about. And poems are the same way. Every poem has a sort of a spark at the centre. It has um, it has something, I don't know if something divine is quite the right word, but let's just say it has a spark, something really important at the centre. And the way that the poem is written is the, is the architecture that contains that spark, like a tabernacle. So you could just pick up the poem and you can enjoy it from an artistic point of view, the way you could walk into a cathedral and say what beautiful stained glass windows, or you could let that that artistry lead you to that spark in the same way that studying Gothic architecture, for example, or studying the symbolism in the windows can inspire your prayer. So the best spiritual poems, they aren't just exercises in metre and rhyme. They draw the reader into, into the meditation that precedes contemplation. Um, we know that truth, beauty and goodness go hand in hand and poetry, because it requires such an attention to beauty, is, is very well suited for capturing these truths. And for that reason, I think there are some poets that, that we, we need to, to know about um, and to, to read. We don't have time for all of them, unfortunately, so I'd like to mention uh, two poets who belong to a group known as the Metaphysical Poets, who were a group, using the word very loosely, um, of British poets of the 17th century. They were never a formal group of poets. You know, they were never a club. They weren't like the Inklings. They didn't call themselves the metaphysical poets. That's, that's the name that we've given them later. But I, I would like to suggest that you look at the works of two, two of them, John Donne and George Herbert. Uh, John Donne's family was originally Catholic. Most of the metaphysical poets were not Catholic. There was one called Richard, Richard Crashaw, but I don't think his poems the best, were the best. Dunn's and Herbert's, they surpass everything. Dunn's family was originally Catholic, um, but most of the Catholics were persecuted out of existence. Um, and even after he became an Anglican priest, he, he was proud to say, I come from a family of martyrs. Both of the poets had that sort of Anglicanism that's actually very deeply informed by Catholicism. For example, uh, Dunn made a holy hour every day using the spiritual exercises of St. Ignatius of Loyola, even though they were banned, I understand, um, in England at the time. Yet he refers to it obliquely in his poetry, which was very brave. They were both very different characters as men and as poets. Um, Dunn had a very public career as the Dean of St. Paul's Cathedral in London, and he wrote not only spiritual poetry, but very vivid and very mischievous love poetry. Uh, he was broken-hearted after the death of his wife and never remarried, even though that was very, very unusual for the time. Uh, he's called an eschatological poet because his focus is often on the, is on the four last things, death, judgment, heaven and hell. Um, and his poems have very dramatic opening lines, things like, Batter my heart, death be not proud, oh my black soul, 
And even if you love poetry, my favorite opening line is, for God's sake, hold your tongue and let me love. Um, he, he shatters. There are a lot of stereotypes, stereotypes abound about, about Christians and about Christian poets in particular. We, people can feel, and sometimes we can give them reason to feel, that if you are a Christian, you must be against the body, you must be against, or you must be afraid of sort of any kind of physical joy in love, um, must be against science. And if you write poetry, it has to be pious doggerel. Dunn contradicts all of these stereotypes. Um, his love poetry is, is, some of it is so racy, it's almost scandalous. His spiritual poetry is deeply passionate, um, deeply meditative, and all of it is infused with a lot of scientific metaphor. He was fascinated by the scientific achievements of the day and by scientific discoveries, and he's able to use things like map making and exp exploration and telescopes and, and compasses and all these sorts of things to bring them into as metaphors for the love of his wife or for the love of God or for both. So if you ever want to contradict anyone's stereotypes about Christians, give them John Donne's poetry to read. Uh, Herbert, George Herbert was a much quieter character. Um, he had a, a growing career and growing renown when he was at Cambridge University, but he renounced it all in order to be a, in order to be a parish priest in a fairly quiet parish where he, he spent his life just preaching, uh, rebuilding the church out of his own funds, uh, writing poetry and, and caring for his people, just caring for the people around him, so much so that he was known as Holy Mr. Herbert by the time of his death. Uh, he's considered a characterological poet. His concern is with the love of God. His poems, unlike Dunn's, open very quietly, but they often build up to a very dramatic ending, whereas Dunn goes the other way sometimes. Very dramatic openings, but not necessarily dramatic endings. And they're the sort of poems which can be admired not only from a literary point of view, but they're also very useful spiritually. And I'll give you one example, which is a poem called Prayer by George Herbert. And it runs this way. Prayer, the church's banquet, angel's age, God's breath in man returning to his birth, the soul in paraphrase, heart in pilgrimage, the Christian plummet sounding heaven and earth, engine against the almighty, sinner's tower, reversed thunder, Christ's side piercing spear, the six days world transposing in an hour a kind of tune which all things hear and fear. Softness and peace and joy and love and bliss, exalted manner, gladness of the blessed, heaven in ordinary, man well dressed, the Milky Way, the bird of paradise, church bells beyond the stars heard, the soul's blood, the land of spices, something understood. Now you could approach that in two ways. You could look at it technically and say, well, this is the rhyme scheme. Um, you know, this is why it has this many lines. This is the versification. This is the pattern. But you could also take each image, each image which is an image for prayer, and think about it. And that that can lead you to a deeper meditation about what prayer is. The soul in paraphrase. When we pray, we express what's what's deepest in our soul. Our soul is being paraphrased. Heart in pilgrimage. How many saints have talked about prayer as, as that thing which draws them to heaven, as the thing which comes from, you know, from the love in their hearts and draws them up to God? Um, this, he also says, you know, the soul's blood. Um, it's 
prayer, you know, is the lifeblood of the soul, and so on and so forth. You could go through each one of those, and by the time you got to the end of each of those images and thought about it, you'd have a very different understanding of prayer. Um, that was one example, and that, I think, is sufficient. You have been listening to a Lumen Verum Apologetics Lecture by Miss Lucy O'Connell. For more Lumen Verum Apologetics Lectures, visit cradio.org.au.